This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici. And I'm Dr. John Keenan. We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we are going to be discussing a very popular article about high-dose buprenorphine induction. How are you doing, John? Great. Uh, kind of enjoying uh, this kind of rainy time of the year here in South Central PA. So I certainly feel like an old man these days, uh, looking outside, happy that the grass is getting water. I think that's a, a sign of the change of times. Yes, our lawn was very crispy also. So it's happy right now that it's cool and rainy. So John, anything in addiction medicine news you want to share with our listeners this week? Yeah, um, I had uh, was w- looking at NPR um, the other day, and they actually had a really kind of interesting, just kind of three-minute uh, video segment about Malincrat, which is an Ireland-based uh, generic prescription manufacturer. And um, as many people know, kind of with all of the opioid prescribing and kind of pharmaceutical role in exacerbating the opioid epidemic, there is kind of large settlement funds that are currently being paid out. Um, some of the funds are going directly to people that were harmed, so family members of people that overdosed due to kind of excessive opioid prescribing. Actually, a lot of it, like 80%, is going to programs to kind of treat opioid use disorder and kind of mitigate risk moving forward. So most of it is actually more towards kind of uh, treatment efforts. And this is kind of one of the first uh, pharmaceutical companies that is actually trying to get out of pain. Uh, to a certain extent. So they they filed Chapter 11 um, last year uh, due to kind of like low profits, mostly because they're a generic pharmaceutical company. And part of that kind of settlement for Chapter 11 was that they still were on the hook to pay out this $1.7 billion in opioid settlement funds. And due to kind of lagging profits, they're trying to actually file bankruptcy a second time, almost like a consolidation where they can still operate, but they would actually kind of go defunct on that $1.7 billion. And kind of more immediately next week, they're due to pay, I think, the first $200 million of this. So I just thought that was kind of, um, it was sad to, to hear a little bit. I think that there was a lot of harm with pharmaceutical companies. I think not a silver lining, but almost like an atonement was that we were going to get some funds from them back to kind of work with treating people that were harmed by some of their interventions. Um, certainly, uh, they do think that this is kind of a unique case, but the idea that there's a way to finagle your way out of paying this and still kind of operate, it certainly doesn't seem right. Yeah, I would agree. I'm also interested to see if there's an accountability for how the funds are spent. It's been interesting in our area, you know, funds went to county level programs. So each county got to distribute funds as they saw fit. And, you know, we're in a relatively rural area. I can't claim that the sort of county leadership in these rural Pennsylvania counties have a great handle on what would be the best treatment for opioid use disorder or the best way to spend money to help patients in their counties with opioid use disorder. And I appreciate that the funds are local and not, you know, necessarily just going to major cities or to large institutions that some smaller local organizations would have access, but I am concerned about accountability. Um, And so I know there are some groups that have been tracking the opioid settlement funds, and I hope that they do actually end up in programs that help people with opioid use disorder. Yeah, definitely. How about you, Sonia, kind of an addiction medicine, any kind of thing new this week? Well, it's not really news, but news for me. I gave my very first extended release buprenorphine injection recently. I've been working hard to get that going for my office. I had to order, you know, some special storage and do some training and convince my office to help me with it. And I'm just really excited to offer this to my patients. So 
for any of our listeners who don't know, buprenorphine is a medicine we use to treat opioid use disorder, very common medication. And you can take it every day like a pill, or you can get it in a once monthly injection rather than a daily pill or film. Some patients might prefer the injection, and I'm always happy to offer as many options as possible so people can find something that works for them. And the first patient that I gave the injection to was pretty satisfied, at least for the first week. So John, I know you give this product in your office. What's been your experience with the long-acting injectable buprenorphine? Yeah, I think um, when this kind of first came along a couple of years ago, I'll be honest with you, I was a little skeptical at first, mostly due to the initial cost of the medication, also difficulty with kind of arranging for this to be done. Oftentimes, it's not something carried at most local pharmacies. Most insurances require going to a specialty pharmacy. It can be a delay getting that medication to you, especially if you're starting with the medication. Uh, there was times where I would get the product eventually and the patient wouldn't show up and I actually felt somewhat guilty regarding the cost of this and just kind of wasting away in my controlled substance fridge at the office. But it really works very well for, for many patients. I think I have lots of patients now that seek out this option, knowing that kind of, at least in the community, I have a reputation that I can get the medicine and consistently treat people with this. People really like it. They feel good on it. And, and I have had patients come to me also um, with the intention of weaning off of buprenorphine. They've been stable for many years, and they actually want to switch the shot to, as a means of weaning off due to kind of the steady state and the gradual taper. And actually, those have actually been probably, I'd say, 95% of my success stories weaning people off of buprenorphine. I, I've had very few patients that have successfully weaned off of the oral formulation. So it's been a great medication. A lot of patients really like it. I've only ever had one patient switch off of it once they've been on it. That's awesome. No, I'm really looking forward to using it. In our area, there aren't a lot of providers in our more rural county who give it. So there have been a bunch of patients asking about it and I'm excited. I think with any kind of specialty pharmacy med, I think it's kind of like trial and error to find the specialty pharmacy that works the best. Um, and certainly I can tell you like in our area, we talk offline, I, I found like the sweet sauce for that. And once I found the right pharmacy that really kind of coordinated well, it, it's almost seamless at this point. So, you know, I think the first couple I did other uh, specialty pharmacies and it was real kind of a nightmare. I just, I'll give a by name shout out to Banks Pharmacy in South Central Pennsylvania. If any of our listeners are out there and you're looking for a specialty pharmacy for injectable buprenorphine, let me give a shout out to Banks. All right, this is a good segue into our article, which is also about buprenorphine. John, do you want to get started? Yeah, so um, this is a little different, I think, than um, many of the other articles we covered because it's not as recent. So it's not an article from this year. It was actually from 2021. And the reason that I chose to cover this is because uh, we went to ASAM recently and this article was cited at least in three or four of the different sessions regarding opioid use disorder treatment. And I had not actually read this article myself. So I wanted to actually kind of use this as an excuse for me to read it since it seems to be such an influential article. So um, the article is called High Dose Buprenorphine Induction in the Emergency Department for Treatment of Opioid Use Disorder. And it's from JAMA Network Open from July 2021. A little bit of background about the topic. So initiation of buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder in the emergency department combined with linkage to outpatient care is an effective strategy to reduce morbidity and mortality among persons living with opioid addiction. There is substantial evidence that ED-initiated buprenorphine is both life-saving and cost-effective, leading to recognition to patient access from the American College of ED Physicians, U.S. Surgeon General, NIDA, and SAMHSA. So they all have strong recommendations that ED should have access to this medication for patients that are willing to be treated. 
Guidelines published from the Department of Health and Human Services, which were developed for office-based practice, limit the maximal sublingual buprenorphine induction dose to 8 to 12 milligrams over the first 24 hours. And I think many of us kind of former ex-wavered physicians, most of the training that you did for this really talked about this kind of initial back dose with kind of an up titration and another 48 to 72 hours, which was kind of somewhat inconsistent with how some providers practice. Most individuals with opioid use disorder require doses greater than the initial induction dose to suppress opioid withdrawal and craving. So an accelerated induction procedure that achieves therapeutic buprenorphine levels in three to four hours versus a typical two to three days could potentially increase safety during the crucial gap between ED discharge and continuation of treatment in the outpatient setting. The clinical question here in this trial was really kind of one is a high dose, which was defined as greater than 12 milligrams of buprenorphine induction protocol for patients with opioid use disorder presenting to the ED safe and tolerable. So a little bit about this trial. So the study design. So this is a case series study of 579 ED encounters among 391 unique patients with opioid use disorder treated with a high-dose sublingual buprenorphine protocol at a single large urban safety net emergency department between January 1st, 2018 and December 31st, 2018. The primary outcomes were occurrence of precipitated withdrawal and any serious event attributable to buprenorphine administration. So this included things like sedation, decreased respiratory rate, hypoxia, or naloxone administration in the emergency department or in the first 24 hours after discharge. Data collection was done by a primary reviewer that was blinded to the study's aim, and they also had a secondary reviewer that was blinded to abstraction of the primary reviewer, and they did basically inter-rater reliability agreements. They periodically assessed whether or not the two reviewers documented the same data from the medical record, and that was based upon random sampling. A little bit of background about how this emergency department did a rollout for this high-dose buprenorphine treatment pathway. So there was 58 emergency department attendings and 21 emergency department APPs who received protocol training prior to the intervention. They have two substance use disorder navigators who were able to assist in the protocol implementation, and they were available Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. An ED attending board certified in addiction medicine was available 24-7 to assist with real-time consultation and guidance if needed. There was also ongoing reinforcement throughout this year of intervention at ED daily clinical rounds, case conferences, and kind of reassessment of implementation over that one-year period. So the topic was touched on periodically throughout to kind of reinforce its existence, but also kind of experience with the protocol. Patient selection for protocol initiation was based upon the patient's history, vital signs, physical examination findings, clinical judgment using a CALS, and evaluation of complicating factors. So basically... A provider could take all of these different factors together and they could determine whether or not they want to use the high dose protocol or the standard protocol. So there was some kind of selection bias and it was kind of like dealer's choice. A little bit about the protocol itself, and this kind of you're a visual learner actually kind of looking at the graphic slide may be beneficial. Um, but basically, what they would do is if you had a diagnosis of uncomplicated opioid withdrawal, they would confirm, first of all, the time since your last opioid use. So they wanted short-acting opioids like heroin or fentanyl to be greater than 12 hours, long-acting opioids like oxycodone, 24 hours, and methadone, as we know, is extremely long-acting, at least 72 hours for initiation of buprenorphine in the emergency department. Once you hit this category, you were assessed based upon a CAL score. If your CAL score was less than 8, 
they would reassess you in one to two hours. And if it rose to greater than eight, they would talk about an induction pathway, but eight was the cutoff for initiation. If your cow score was eight or above, everyone received four to eight milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine once. They were reassessed 30 to 60 minutes later, and then you were sent to one of two groups based upon your response, but also the preference of the provider that assessed you in the emergency department. The standard dose induction protocol was what most of us had previously learned about with a maximum dose of 8 to 12 milligrams. So for patients whose withdrawal symptoms improve and who had uh, no anticipated barriers to discharge or buprenorphine access and their cows dropped to less than 8, they were given a dose up to 12 milligrams in the emergency department. They were observed for 30 to 60 minutes and discharged with a script of 16 milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine they got to their follow-up appointment. And that's kind of the classic pathway of what they were doing prior to the intervention. You could also elect to put a patient into a high-dose induction pathway. And so this would be basically patients that had no uh, signs of sedation or respiratory depression from the initial test dose, no signs of precipitated withdrawal, had heavy opioid tolerance, or still had a Cal score that was greater than or equal to eight on reassessment. Also, they took into account things like barriers to dispense buprenorphine on discharge. So people that maybe didn't have great access, they thought they would possibly do better with a high-dose induction that would kind of last them longer till their follow-up appointment to suppress cravings for return to use. And what would happen in this group is that in addition to the initial 4 to 8 milligrams of buprenorphine you received with the initial induction, you could give 8 to 24 milligrams of buprenorphine. And this could be done either kind of in 4 to 8 milligram increments or they could give you just another 24 milligrams all at once. So another area where the APP or the physician actually had the ability to kind of pick what dose they wanted to give. If practical, because this group also was kind of the higher risk group where we had concern regarding follow-up, they would do uh, 16 milligrams of sublingual buprenorphine prescription until a follow-up date coming up. So Sonia, any kind of questions before I go further about this protocol they use with the high-dose buprenorphine treatment pathway? One thing that struck me, though, is this article is such an example of the slow pace of science. You know, you said they did the protocol in 2018, so they had to know about it and develop it and test it out even prior to that. And then they had to, you know, write it up and it was published in 2022. And now we're hearing about it at ASAM 2023, five plus years after they did this major research. And I won't say it's the first time we're hearing about it, but it just took a long time to get from, you know, conception to wide practice. And I don't know. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it definitely takes a long time to get a major study, especially one that really is expected to change practice and really make a difference for patients. It seems like a long time to get it from conception stage to out in practice in the community. Yeah, I think I can agree with that. So is this trial valid? Um, so the study was funded by a research grant from NIDA, so kind of no industry bias. It's a large case series of 391 unique patients representing 579 encounters at a single institution. So uh, it was not this kind of large randomized control trial, but that's a very large number. And with kind of like diffuse utilization of this protocol in the department, it, it seems like that selection bias probably didn't pay play like an entirely large role in this. Subject analysis included all patients receiving buprenorphine induction. The one thought I had, um, they didn't really talk about the N of like how many 
patients with opioid use disorder are actually treated at this emergency department. So they did talk about that, you know, 391 unique patients, 579 encounters for those patients. But what was that in relationship to the number of people that could have potentially been in this type of a protocol? We know that kind of not everyone in the emergency department at most institutions probably offers this. Um, probably selective ED providers do. So it'd be more interesting if there was, you know, 579 encounters out of 600 possible versus 579 encounters out of possibly 10,000 possible encounters. So how much kind of like selection really played into this? Reviewers were blinded with inter-rater reliability monitors. So I, I like the fact when you have duplicate data entry, also with comparison to ensure accuracy, it shows that the data is high quality. I thought it was interesting that data analysis was retrospective and limited to documentation accuracy. And they actually talk about, you know, we're talking about an opioid uh, induction protocol. And they said that kind of in many charts, a cow's score was actually not even documented. So I'm not sure whether or not that it was just kind of done and not recorded or whether or not someone was kind of just gestalting a level of withdrawal, which I think does occur from time to time at some institutions. 88% of ED physicians and 100% of the APPs in the ED chose to adopt the high-dose buprenorphine treatment pathway with more physicians and APPs kind of jumping in as the protocol went on longer throughout the trial. The utilization of the high-dose induction was based upon patient history, vital signs, physical exam, clinical judgment using a COWS, evaluation of complicating factors, and response to initial buprenorphine administration. So uh, kind of selection of the protocol was very DOC and APP dependent um, and based upon their clinical judgment. So not like a true randomized controlled trial. Certainly clinical gestalt kind of drove you in one direction versus the other, which happens in practice as well. So not kind of that much different from what you would see in a normal emergency department. Only the buprenorphine monoproduct was used. So I think that this is kind of a valid point. We do know that if you test kind of a urine drug screen on a patient and get a comprehensive panel, you're really theoretically not supposed to have any naloxone absorption. However, we do see naloxone absorbed. And there's kind of some data arising about some people that kind of have these intolerance to the combination product. It's possible that they have kind of variability. They're like kind of naloxone absorbers. So Theoretically, you could have patients that are absorbing more naloxone, and if you were to use the combination product, would they have a higher risk of precipitated withdrawal? That's an unknown, but a valid question. What do you think, Sonia? Is there anything else you think about this trial that I'm leaving off? No, it's a very valid trial. I think we have to remember that it's a prospective trial, and whenever there's a choice, you know, where the providers get to choose which patients they try the new protocol on, there's huge potential for bias because, of course, you choose the patients who you think will be most successful. So when looking at the results, we have to keep that in mind. I was also interested in your comment about the naloxone component, and this is a total aside, but I've had a lot of patients with concerns about the naloxone component of the buprenorphine-naloxone combination. It's there really just for abuse deterrent meaning it makes it hard to take the medication in a way other than prescribed, but it doesn't really therapeutic benefit. It has no therapeutic benefit. It's not there to help the patient and it has significant potential for therapeutic downsides in terms of side effects, especially for people who are heavier absorbers of that naloxone. So I definitely have concerns about it. And um, if we have patients who don't want to take it, want to take that buprenorphine monoproduct, I have no problem switching them over And so it's interesting that you brought that up as a good thing in this trial that they use the buprenorphine monoproduct and a potential downside if someone were to try it in an institution where they had the combo product instead. 
So a little about the results. So we talked about 391 unique patients, 579 visits, 267 out of 391, so that's 68.3% were male, 170 out of 391, that's 43.5% were black, and 148 out of 391, that's 37.8% were white. I thought this was interesting because I think most of the trials kind of favor heavy Caucasian presence in terms of participants, not necessarily due to the fact that white patients versus black patients, one uses kind of substance use more than the other. Uh, we do know that kind of utilization of healthcare and treatment for substance use disorder favors patients that are white and patients that are black tend to not have access to treatment or to receive treatment as frequently. 88 out of 391, that's 22.5% were homeless. 161 out of 391, which is 41%, had a comorbid psychiatric disorder. 209 out of 391, that's 53.5% had never been treated with or self-prescribed themselves buprenorphine before. And I thought that was kind of the most surprising fact to me. I'm not saying I don't believe it, but it seems unbelievable to me as a buprenorphine prescriber that a patient with opioid use disorder, that over half of them have never had any experience with buprenorphine. I don't think I've ever met a patient that hasn't had experience with buprenorphine prior to meeting me. In Journal Club, someone brought up a good point that maybe this is because this is a higher black portion where they have less access to treatment. That's a possibility, but certainly I thought that was very interesting. It's also possible that because it was done in 2018, buprenorphine is just a lot less available. I think now in 2023, there's a lot more buprenorphine available in all kinds of communities and with it a lot more buprenorphine diversion. And so people are more likely to use it. The price of a sort of illicit buprenorphine is lower. So maybe now we we it's true every single patient we see almost has already tried it on their own at least a little bit but maybe in 2018 in a predominantly black community it was not you know not so available. So treatment outcomes uh, further kind of in terms of the primary outcomes 366 out of 579 that 63.2% of ED encounters utilize the high dose induction pathway so the pathway they use greater than 12 milligrams of buprenorphine in the emergency department. 138 out of 579, that's 23.8% of ED encounters use doses or greater than 28 milligrams of buprenorphine. Most patients were triaged as low severity and treated by APP. So 359 out of 579, that's 62% were APP treated. Even though we had kind of great buy-in from all the staff due to selection, the APPs really dominated initiation of this protocol in this trial. Median length of stay in the ED was 2.4 hours, which I thought was incredibly low and admirable that it was only 2.4 hours to have a patient in the emergency department treated for their coexisting medical condition or admitted and have received this pathway. I mean, that sounds kind of amazing for an emergency department. So I was very impressed by that low length of stay time. Overall study, over the study duration, clinicians tended to favor the increased higher dose initiation pathway. So when you actually look through the trial kind of earlier on, people were leaning more towards what they know. And I think probably as they had more of these case conferences and more kind of reinforcement and they were hearing good experience from their colleagues, I think people started to switch over and favor the high dose protocol as the trial went on. The primary outcomes, number one, precipitated withdrawal. So only five out of 579 encounters, that's 0.8%, experienced precipitated withdrawal. Four out of five cases of precipitated withdrawal occurred with the initial dose, so the four to eight milligram test dose. So this was independent of the intervention of the high dose versus the standard protocol. So four out of five occurred just with your initial administration, unrelated to the high dose protocol. 
One case of precipitated withdrawal occurred with the high-dose protocol, and that was actually a case of polysubstance intoxication, which probably complicated presentation. I think most of us that practice kind of um, addiction medicine know that when you have multiple intoxication withdrawal syndromes and various degrees of kind of like acutely intoxicated versus withdrawal, it really makes it tough sometimes to figure out what's going on at that moment when you're initially encountering a patient. All cases of precipitated withdrawal were successfully treated with additional buprenorphine and all patients were discharged successfully from the ED in stable or improved condition. In terms of the second outcome that they were looking at, any serious event attributable to buprenorphine administration, there was three life-threatening adverse events that occurred during the study. One case of DKA and then one patient who had two encounters and he represented actually with an acute MI. No patients were admitted for buprenorphine-related precipitated withdrawal. No serious events occurred with buprenorphine administration, so no sedation, hypoxia, or naloxone rescue in the ED or within 24 hours after discharge, at least that they were able to capture in this trial. What do you think of those results? I'm still amazed that they got people on average through the ER in under two and a half hours with a full buprenorphine induction, either traditional or high dose. Um, These people are super speedy and I'm very admiring. I mean, it it was interesting in Journal Club, we had a participant in our live Journal Club who is, you know, does a sort of mobile buprenorphine unit and was thinking with, you know, such quick inductions, you could do full induction in your mobile unit. You don't have to wait around all day, which is the sort of standard outpatient induction involves multiple small doses of buprenorphine over a sort of a 24 to 48 hour period. But if you can get it done in two and a half hours with no apparent adverse effects, that's amazing. So kind of boiling this down, will the results of this study help me in patient care? I don't find this as relevant to my outpatient practice, and I'm not an emergency department physician. So really kind of to, to truly apply this, I'd have to be in the ER setting. But, but I do do inpatient consults where I treat patients with opioid use disorder admitted for a primary medical condition where opioid use disorder complicates kind of a patient-directed discharge or their compliance with treatment in the hospital. Fear of precipitated withdrawal with higher induction doses often prevents a more timely capture of those withdrawal symptoms and, more importantly, resolution of cravings, which is often the reason they're leaving the hospital. So we're often playing this balance of like timing and dose with initiation, mostly with concerns that we're actually going to harm patients. This large case series of high-dose buprenorphine sublingual inductions suggests that actually a high-dose protocol is probably very safe and that when administered to the right patient could actually be a way of controlling withdrawal and cravings at a much more rapid pace than we typically classically have done with the Health and Human Service guidelines. While not directly stated, the low rate of adverse effect and precipitated withdrawal in this study could indicate that higher outpatient induction dosages may also be safe and effective in the right patient. So oftentimes when we start those lower doses, patients will be upset or they don't feel they're being treated well for the first two to three days, and you have to kind of weather that storm. I think kind of the most telling thing is I actually took a picture of that algorithm, and it's on my my phone. So I actually plan to use that in, in a very future, like very near future episode of inpatient induction for the right person, especially uh, kind of patient kind of admitted for an injection related complication that could be life threatening that could possibly leave, such as like a endocarditis or a discitis or epidural abscess. Well, and I don't see why we wouldn't use it in the outpatient. It's no more complicated. It's actually less complicated than the induction flow sheet that I give people to do at home now, which involves taking kind of two milligrams every few hours throughout the first day. They could just take the initial test dose of four milligrams. If they feel okay, 
they can just take the whole film and that's it for the day. They're done. And then the next day they can take a whole film in the morning and another one later in the day if they want. And that seems a lot simpler than, you know, our current protocol. I've thought about it back and forth and I'm not kind of poo-pooing that idea, but kicking it back and forth. I think my only thought is, like I said before, this is only the buprenorphine monoproduct. Sometimes that's not what you're using in the outpatient. That could be an X factor possibly. Also, response to the test dose, I think you're kind of relying entirely upon the patient versus a clinical judgment, which not that it's a bad thing, but it's just a little different. I'd have to think a little bit further before I'm ready to jump in that domain. The other thing that I think outpatients might possibly have trouble understanding or getting right is that if your first day you're up to 32 milligrams, but then after that you're supposed to move forward on 12 or uh, 8 or 12 or 16 or some lower dose, people might end up getting confused. Well, I took four films the first day. You mean I'm not going to take four the next day? So maybe there would be some confusion there. Yeah, great article though. Yeah, it was really awesome. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the articles included in a future episode, you can send us your comments on all the social medias. We're on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. Spotify has comments. You can email us. You can join our Facebook group. If you know us in person, you can just come tell us. All these links are in the show notes. Our original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy. Audio editing by Aaron McHugh. Produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation. Have a great day.